Welcome to Counter Stories, a show by people of color, for people of color, and everyone else. I'm Halili, owner of The Other Media Group and producer of this show. I'm Don Eubanks, associate of Dendros Group and member of the Mille Lacs Band of Ojibwe Indians. I'm Luz Maria Frias, Deputy Attorney General with the State of Minnesota. Any comments and opinions that I voice are strictly my own and should not be attributed to my employer. I'm Anthony Galloway, pastor of St. Mark AME Church and senior partner at Dendros Group. We have a great guest joining us, and I'll let him introduce himself. Hi, everybody. I'm Sam Chu. I am formerly the content manager of Call to Mind, the mental health initiative at Minnesota Public Radio. Thanks so much for joining us, Sam. Um, you know, your name came up to us from our former producer and show friend, Marianne Combs who made a very lovely post about um, the current situation you find yourself in no longer employed, but also the amazing amount of work that you have done during your time at NPR. And she talked specifically about Cultman. Can you tell us about that and and what um, your role there was? Sure. So Cult Mind was uh, set out to be a five-year initiative, uh, a content initiative about mental health so that we could foster new conversations about mental health. And when I came on board, we had a director uh, there for just over a year. And I came from the Minnesota Public Radio newsroom as a producer. And I really wanted to do journalistic work uh, in mental health and really bring forward conversations that quite frankly, the public radio audience would not get to hear uh, if it weren't being produced with a different kind of frame of mind to bring forth voices that are often overshadowed in discussions about mental health. So really um, coming to it with uh, an understanding that people of color um, have massive mental health disparities as far as access to care and the quality of care that people get. People of color often are subjected to more adverse childhood experiences, uh, early childhood trauma that manifest into additional layers of uh, mental health complications that can affect people long into adulthood. Um, and we're just we're just subjected to more of them more frequently because you know racism is not good for mental health. Um, and so we, we I, I really made it kind of my personal mission to bring, to elevate voices of those with mental illnesses. I happen to be one myself. Um, oftentimes we're talked about just like people of color are talked about in media. And I really wanted to make sure that we were providing a platform for us ourselves to talk about what works for us, what doesn't work for us, and what we're seeing in the systems that do and don't uh, really actually help those in need. And quite frankly, wanting to get help, but unable to. So Sam, for our listeners who don't know you, you identify as BIPOC. Do you want to unpack that for us so, so that folks understand your journey, but also uh, just culturally speaking as well, the needs that I imagine you've identified in, in your research and your reporting that are unique to our BIPOC communities? Sure. Um, so I am a Korean American. Um, I was born to two Korean immigrants uh, who came to the U.S., emigrated here. Uh, my dad was in the U.S. Army, and I was born in the States. 
So um, I am a U.S. citizen, uh, but uh, was born in Fort Bragg, North Carolina, moved to Minnesota when I was just months old, and have been informed numerous times that, oh, well, clearly I'm not a Minnesotan, uh, even mm. though I've lived all my life here. Um, mm-hmm. So I've got a, a different uh, interpretation for what Minnesota nice can be. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I've, I was always, uh, since my childhood, both my parents had mental illnesses, um, and, and fairly serious ones. My dad had a uh, uh, paranoid delusional disorder or a delusional disorder, paranoid type. And my mom had schizophrenia. Um, and so even as a child, um, when they would run into problems because of their delusions or, uh, because of the, the beliefs that they were having because of their illnesses, I was often finding myself to be an interpreter for them who, you know, they're learning English and quite frankly, speak much better English than most Americans would speak Korean or Spanish or German or whatever they're taking in high school. Um, but still interpreting for them through all the systems that were never designed to ever accommodate them. So like the, the, the healthcare system when it came to mental health, the legal system when it came to mental health, um, they unfortunately had a lot of needs um, in over the time of my childhood. So I became very adept early on at speaking to and with authorities or those who were in power to truly to try to help my parents who are really disempowered and probably among the citizens we are walking around our neighbors, like probably amongst the most disempowered because they were so easily written off for being mentally ill or any number of pejoratives that would f- fill in that blank. So you really serve the, the role of a cultural navigator as well as a systems navigator. And above all that, an interpreter, and you were just a child. And I say, I want to connect the dots for our listeners because that's often the additional stress, responsibility, and quite honestly, burden that our particularly immigrant families um, face in terms of our children, right? I know we've shared, I've shared my journey. I know Hilly has shared her journey along those lines as well. You don't, you can't opt out of that. That's not a choice. Right. That is your life. And that that's formative for you as you grow up. Uh, Yeah, it absolutely is. And uh, in Korean culture, like in many um, paternalistic uh, cultures, uh, I was I am the only son. I'm firstborn son. So all the responsibility of the family and our well-being does rest on me. And so, like, that's what I was raised with. That's the the kind of role that I was always expected to fill uh, for my parents, um, even as a child. And then when I was seeing at a very early age, my mom likely had undiagnosed postpartum uh, depression and then uh, also had schizophrenia. So I was, as a child, seeing my mother completely debilitated um, by her mental illness. And still I was expected to help her kind of navigate the world that we were in uh, when I was still, you know, just holding her hand, trying to like get around the neighborhood. Um, but to to your point, like I I do think that is a, a particular burden on those who are seen as clearly not mainstream, 
uh, here in Minnesota, but um, just foreign, quite frankly, uh, mm-hmm. like just visibly seen as being foreign. Um, and it's a, it's, it's a challenge, especially in systems that as good as the people are that might be working in the health and human services or department of health or all of those state agencies to try and help people, they just don't have the time or the means to really meet people where they are because there's just too many people to take care of who have these needs. And when, when you have, like, I've, I've talked about this, you know, if every single step you take away from being a straight, educated, wealthy, white guy, straight white guy, like cis guy, you know, every step away you take away from that, or you step away from that is just additional burdens and stress and uh, difficulties navigating oftentimes in, in the places we are. So yeah, it's a real challenge. So Sam, just real quick, you know, because uh, you, you know, thank you for sharing some of that background, because I think many of our, there are many folks that, that listen to counter stories that probably, that can relate to that. But more importantly, you know, because I think even Hilly has shared some of that. Um, and I know when I taught at Metro, many of the students that, uh, that, that attended our social work program were, were immigrant students, either Hmong or Karen or African from, from various African countries and also relayed similar type stories. But there's a lot in what you shared. Because I'm imagining when you were dealing with this, how old were you? What? How old were you when you were trying to do this? I, I, I can I can easily say that my parents have exhibited their symptoms of mental illness from my very first memory. Sure. Um, so, like, I I never knew a time when there wasn't some like active psychosis or delusion right. or like real um, depression like uh, symptoms that were completely affecting my family. And like, I would see how my family was navigating spaces in comparison to extended relatives or other friends or um, other people in general and could tell right away, one of these things is not like the other. And it wasn't just about race. So the fact that, you know, you are very young, when most of us at that point in time have no idea what systems are, have no idea what what um, is available and not available in terms of resources that might that might be or not be available for our families. None of us are aware of that when we're that young, right? We we have no clue, and um, and so roughly about what time period would you put this in? It was definitely the 80s and 90s. The 80s. Um, yep. So if we were to give that further context, all right, so if we're talking about the 80s or even the 90s, but even the 80s, by that time, as a result of efforts to to um, do away with the warehouses that we had in place in the United States where folks with with severe mental illness were placed Right. So they were placed in these large institutions where they were taken care of. Now, taken care of is one thing. They were fed, they were sheltered, they were kept as safe as they could be. 
However, they weren't treated because we didn't we didn't know how to treat mental health serious mental health um, issues at that time. So they were, but they were warehouse. They were kept in in these relatively safe places, most often for for most of their lives. But when right. we when we did away with those institutions, because we were just warehousing them, the idea is that we would do away with these institutions, and the there would be this this uh this creation of a mental health system in the community that would step in and help these individuals, which never happened. So we yep. released individuals into society. Sometimes they literally were just dropped on the street. And then we started dealing with homelessness, right? I mean, I'm just kind of given a time frame. And here you are as a young child in Minnesota trying to navigate a system that doesn't barely exist. Right. I mean, you know, the... The things that society was hoping would happen did not happen. That infrastructure was not created once we once we closed down those institutions, um, and and so many you know so even the, the the current therapists that are in place, folks who are mental health professionals, folks who kind of provide the service, uh, very rarely do they see or treat people with severe or debilitating mental health issues. Very seldom are those clients seen by therapists or psychologists or psychiatrists or, or other mental health professionals because of the lack of the healthcare system, mental health system in place. And I mean, so, you know, that's a very long statement because even, even if we, as members of a uh, our various communities of color and, and, and Native Americans, even if we are successful in getting into these spaces to find it, the kind of help that we might need, very seldom are there enough professionals from our own communities that really understand the trauma that we've experienced that often are misdiagnosed by members from the dominant culture who kind of, who, who have no experience with our life and when they do encounter us, tend to write off a lot of what we are presenting to them because it's outside their experience. So when you throw right. that on top, I mean, then, you know, it, it just compounds. I mean, there's so much to unpack in that. So I'll, yeah. I'll shut up. <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, uh, you're right on. Like uh, with with the the interviews that we've done and the research, like the the movement for deinstitutionalization that went from the through the 60s and 70s that ended up with what we had um yeah they took away all those systems or all those asylums or those human warehouses where ill people were just stored and and often not thought of again um they they took those away, but then they didn't really replace it with a structure or systems to really integrate it into healthcare because uh, we just did a, a program on mental health parity. Uh, even the medical establishment, like who are regarded as doctors, there was always a hierarchy of who was going to be respected and who was going to get top billing, literally and, and monetarily. Um, and so like, doctors who were surgeons 
would get top dollar. But doctors who were dabbling in the sciences of the mind, which, which you know, in those times were still, and even today, still, we don't really understand how the mind fully works. Um, they were written off as quacks, but but the therapy, the actual healing was real. And like all of a, like every culture has had healing practices, uh, traditions, uh, rites of passage or commemorations of different traumas of life. And we all celebrate or grieve or have a method of carrying that forward. And as well as European ancestors, like th there's always been these cultural, cultural traditions that helped us process and move along. And then we decided that science was better and we didn't need to think about like our roots and figure out like what those traditions, what they really meant and how they actually helped us as a culture move forward from the things that every culture has to deal with. There's always pain. There's always suffering. There's always the unknown and the unexpected. Um, but we had practices built in. And then once we got into the tossed salad melting pot of the U.S., like the homogenization of, well, we just need to figure out what the mainstream is. And like the mainstream practice is the only thing. And it just happens to come from white Anglo-Saxon Protestants that, um, that don't think about any of the things that our cultures might have thought about and, and shun them. Like that's, that's, that's where the like cultural breakdown and the cultural trauma really sets in because, and, and it, and it goes both ways, right? Cause our ancestors or our parents or ourselves are giving up parts of who our identity are and who are, what our cultural practices are and what our belief systems are so that we can conform and succeed in what air quote succeed in, in what is valued here in our society. But like, there's a lot lost and, and there's real damage and there's real value lost in, in those practices. And like what we also tried to do with call to mind was like, I really came at it as uh, with a treatment positive mindset, but we weren't prescriptive about what treatment was um, like there was, I know uh, in the state of Minnesota, the um, Department of Health was working with um, Native American midwives and healers and 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 other medicine people just to help reinvigorate and reinstill the cultural practices that ha had always been healing. That's something that I didn't get to turn into a program yet, but like I I hope that one day it will be, because there's always some way that we can look back to the past to see what worked, even though we don't understand the science of it. Um, if it, if it ends up helping people heal and process, um, that's all good. And, and there's, um, uh, there's also a, a real movement in the medical establishment now to really build in peer support at the ground level so that people can work with people that look like us that are going through similar uh, symptomology or like how the, the mental illnesses are manifesting so that we can find somebody to sit across the table from that literally relates to us 
so that we can better understand each other and heal together because it's healing for both the peer counselor who's on this uh, mental health journey themselves, as well as for the person that's seeking the treatment. So Sam, there's a lot of different ways to go about this. So glad you made that last point, because when we think about effectiveness and, and Don alluded to this as well in terms of the providers, to have a BIPOC mental health provider is really key. And we can't overstate that. I know I've heard dozens and dozens and dozens of stories from within my own network of friends who, when they have a provider who is not BIPOC, so they've got a white provider, and at the top of the segment, you you talked about how racism is not good for your health. Well, we know that as BIPOC, we are navigating uh, microaggressions on a daily basis. We're navigating um, racist comments. You know, we're navigating a world that is often not healthy for our mental health. And so how do you sit across from a white provider and begin to unpack all of this racialized trauma and have the provider look at you and say, I don't understand, or worse, they minimize it. They minimize the validity of it. And I've heard it through the tears in conversations with my friends saying, I tried to get help. I was told I needed mental health. I tried and and I couldn't find anyone who looked like me and who could understand this, right? So when we talk about the systemic barriers, that's a big one. And I mean, a, a lot- big part of that, a big part of that Luz is like when I was trying to find uh, a, a, a mental health provider, I was just like, oh, you know, I'm looking for anybody Asian. Like I'll take anybody Asian. Um, and like the hard part was like, you know, I. I had Asian friends who were like, oh, you know, I see this person or I see that person. They're really great. And I'd call their office and it's like, oh, yeah, there's a six month waiting list. That's right. Yeah. You know, yeah. and when oh, is a you're waiting in- list generally. <laughs> yeah. And yeah. Uh, there's a, uh, you know, and your insurance doesn't cover it. Mm-hmm. You know, so then I tried to like see somebody that my insurance covered that I could see, you know, sooner rather than later. And then you get there and you're like. I'm explaining to her like, okay, so in my culture, we do this and this and this, or, you know, in my culture, you know, you know, we uh, eat this kind of stuff all the time, or these are the serum. And then I was just like, I feel like I'm just like giving this like educational lesson (laughs) on my people at at some point. And I'm not so much talking about like the effect, you know, some of those things have had on me. I'm like educating somebody else on like who we are. And it just didn't feel like I was, you know, it was doing me any good at that point. Right. You weren't benefiting from it. You were serving as this cultural educator slash navigator for this person. And you're paying to teach them basically. right? Using up your hours. I I had the same experience, you know, finding, you know, uh, thankfully there are some housed within, you know, I'm a, and so there's some resources available in the African Methodist Episcopal church of other clergy who are, licensed therapists themselves. And so we've got a, a network that can get to some folks, but, but in, and I can, thankfully there's some that's paid for from the church. If it wasn't for that, we also, I also have this experience of folks being close enough because multi-generational African-Americans with a history through slavery, we've, we've got a proximity to the dominant culture that gives, that allows for assumptions to get in there. And so there may not be the, you know, I, there's the explaining piece that's in part of that, but then there's, there's the shorthand. When I finally got to a therapist um, who was a, a black woman, 
we got to points to your to your last point, Lee, about the time. I was able to have 15 things that were coming up that were connected to what was causing some of the mental stress. 15 things within 15 minutes. And then we're already yeah. talking in a different space. Well, mm-hmm. That would have taken two sessions uh, and it has in the past taken two sessions with others. And then I'm so glad, Luz, that you talked about the minimizing. How many times have I been in a therapy session and somebody goes, well, just this. And then all of a sudden we're going down a pathway and it's very clear that you haven't understand what all of that means. This mm-hmm. one interaction with this family member, and I'm the oldest of my generation too. So I, 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 I we've got, there's, there's some similarities because there's some expectations on me that I'm trying to talk about. And it was like the, it, it was, it was it, the guidance and the steering was very clear from that therapist that, oh, no, no, you don't understand all the things. And then I have to go back and realize all the things that you just assume you understand that, oh, wait, no, you don't understand here. No, because this here, and I'm making these these ties here. Yeah. And I didn't have any of that with the black provider. And it was a huge difference. Yeah, it's, it's I mean, when when we're with friends of our own culture, there's a cultural shorthand that just comes into conversation that halves the conversation like more than doubles the meaning, right? Yeah. Like mm-hmm. we're speaking on different levels that the ability to code switch, but actually speak in our own native tongues, which might not be our native tongues. It, it might be the English, but still like is, is so much easier to communicate all those different layers and hit multiple points when you're speaking with somebody who has a similar experience to you and has lived those layers. The disparities in mental health care access and finding providers who look like you are myriad. So like for for so long because of the patriarchal uh, nature of medicine and like who is allowed to practice what, the vast majority of mental health professionals are women because, because caring for the mind and feelings and emotions, that was clearly women's work. And men could not be bothered. They were going to work with the the mechanics and the biology of a human being, but not not have to touch the messiness of you know the most powerful organ we have. Um, that was clearly just for women. So let's make sure they also get paid less. Um, but when when you're a guy looking for a man who can understand your experience, and you're looking at the mental health providers there are, more than ninety percent are women. Um, so it's it's hard to find a dude, let alone a dude that looks like you. And this is, uh, I'm, I'm going to put my dude privilege here in check. Like this is this is not me saying, oh man, it's really hard to be a guy. At the same time, <laughs> like how are we going to fix toxic masculinity without mm-hmm. some guys that are going to mm-hmm. be able to step up and say, mm-hmm. listen, we are the problem. Like wh- right. what we're mm-hmm. doing, how we're acting, we're damaging people, and it's it's coming at the detriment of our wives, sisters, mothers, and, and, and daughters. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And, and, and non-binary people too, right? Like mm-hmm. trans and non-binary, like we're, we're making it hard because of our uh, heterosexual cis, uh, like impressions of what needs to be. Um, but along with that, like the vast majority of providers are white. That's it's above 90% there too. So like we, we did, um, I, I produced an event on um, young black resilience in Minnesota uh, with NPR News for uh, for Call to Mind, and 
had a really great conversation. And this is what we tried to do was create a conversation with people of a culture or of a particular uh, identity so that they could talk amongst themselves in that same cultural shorthand with the same relative experience context built in and then record that and then broadcast that to what is the typical public radio audience, which is clearly whiter and uh, and all older and all the things that public radio is. But it's also uh, the reason why I have always loved my job is because I'm able to like produce those conversations and put them in front of a disproportionately high number of policymakers, of um, of business leaders in our state, of people in that are making the economic and financial decisions of what needs to be uh, funded and supported, and and bringing these conversations that are real that they probably won't be able to get to hear, even if they were in a room filled with people of color, just because when when someone who's not directly in our circles comes in and like if if Donald when I was in uh, the the American Indian Center in Minneapolis like I know that it wasn't a fully natural conversation just because I was there but at the same time I tried to make as open an environment as possible so that there could be that discussion for the for the black youth resilience show tried to do the same where three young black men were just talking about what it was like to be in Minnesota post Floyd, uh, having that murder replayed ad nauseum uh, across around the world and seeing the world light up and not seeing real social change happen here, but then trying to find somebody who can identify with that or like try and find somebody who's going to take care of their mental health so that they can heal from that and have that conversation, that's not something that the typical policymaker or like CEO in Minnesota is going to get to hear unless we bring it to them. So like trying to provide those safe spaces where we can illuminate different communities or different, you know, uh, segments of the population that have these needs that otherwise don't get heard or otherwise don't get to like advocate for themselves and being able to put that out there has been invaluable. And I think um, regardless of how things are now, like truly has been a humbling and a humbling privilege for me to uh, take part in. And I, that's always been the joy of doing this work as hard as it is, because, you know, talking about trauma and thinking about trauma all the time is, is taxing. Yeah. But, but Sam, at the same time, like, I agree with you that, you know, it's so wonderful that you were able to do all of this great stuff during your time there. But like, now what, right? Like, you were one of the not that many voices out there who were saying, hey, let's talk about mental health. Let's talk about mental health in the BIPOC community, but also actually being a person from the BIPOC community, right? To to talk about mental health in the media. And I think, you know, that was something I was really interested in, in in having you join our show is talk about how the media covers mental health, um, the lack of or, you know, um, and I mean, you know, thinking about like the, the shootings that have just been happening recently and all of a sudden, 
you know, um, folks are saying, let's not talk about gun control. Let's talk about mental health. I feel like the mental health thing always comes up when there's some uh, like a mass shooting and then people really focus on it for a really short amount of time and then it goes away again, you know, and just coming off Mental Health Awareness Month, you know, and thinking about all this, like, uh, I just wanted to get your insight and everybody else's insight on what you guys think about this whole but conversation. Hilly, around. Hilly, when they bring up mental health, it's not, it's, I don't see that as genuine. I see it as deflecting from what the real problem is, which is, right. which is they don't yes. want to address selling those AR-15s. So they redirect it. And they and they and they uh, um and want to pin it on 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 these individuals because they're dealing right. with mental health issues. And so it, to I me, agree, it, but it, I think what they do is that the media then does pick up on doing some mental health coverage just during this time, and then the media kind of so, drops it again. What, so what do you mean by mental health coverage? You mean just. They kind Talking of talk about, about it. it a little bit, yeah, the, yeah. but that's not the really only time coverage. that mental health exactly. gets mentioned. Yeah. Is, yeah, that's yeah. the only time, I mean, right? Exact, or unless when the police shoot Often. someone with a uh, with a mental health issue, that's the other time yes. that media deals right. with it. Yeah, I mean, uh, I will say, like, what I was really trying to do was create a leading voice in what the national discussion should be about mental health at call to mind um, because the media has historically done a really bad job of covering mental health. I will say it took a global trauma like the pandemic to really change media to actually understanding, oh, mental health is, I mean, literally everybody does have mental health and sometimes we get sick. <laughs> and guess what? When the whole world is sick with a pandemic that is killing millions of people, it's really affecting my health and my mental health and like the, the isolation and the, the separation and the, all of the things that came along with the pandemic, the disruptions of life, like change is stress and stress affects our mental health. Mm -hmm. And sometimes it can be positive stress. Uh, like sometimes there's real value in, in those stressors, but in the stuff that we lived through in the past uh, two years, uh, if we were lucky to survive it, has been really, really hard. And the fact that so many places aren't pressing pause on the return to normal, because like what we envisioned as normal pre-pandemic, that is never a thing that's going to happen again. And that's, that's something that we need to grieve and process and then decide what the new normal that we want to create after this global experience can and should be. And how, how are we going to take care of ourselves and how are we going to take care of each other and how are we going to support each other through the struggles that are common commonly felt across all of us um like the media has now started talking about anxiety and depression and uh some of the 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 uh the common mental health mental illnesses that uh affect so many like there, there was an economic study, mental, mental illnesses or depression was likely going to be the largest thing that took people out of the workplace and was going to be the largest uh, single factor of loss of productivity and economic uh, development. Uh, that was before the pandemic. Now, now that it has, like, there's whole generation, I mean, 
all of us here alive today have been affected by this pandemic, and we have no idea what the long-term effects of this are going to be. Like, there have been historical studies after 9-11 or after the 1918 Spanish flu or things like that, like the, the Great Depression. Those are massively felt cultural traumas, um, but we, we don't really understand what the impact of that is on the long-term psyche of our society because we just keep moving on and moving on. Part of that is healing, like the return to activity that is going to be healthful and maybe distracting, but like something that's going to be productive. That is, that is therapeutic. But acknowledging what we've been through and, and, and like with the return to work orders or things like that, like we have to understand people are in a very different place than, than what each of us are. And there's no way to judge how safe or how secure a person is um, and what their mental health state is unless we're able to talk about it. And we need to like break down the discrimination and the prejudice that exists because uh, as much talk as there is about stigma, that's one thing that we were really trying to reinforce is that discrimination and prejudice is stigma in a, in its real form. Like that is, that is what stigma is. Um, and people with mental illnesses are still today probably the most popularly maligned group of people in society. I mean, if you just list, watch uh, like um, regular primetime TV for an hour, just count up how many times you hear the word crazy. Right. I, well, even I, don't know, in, it, I don't know how many other pejoratives get thrown around yeah, like that conversation. Yeah, it's so normalized. I'm right. so glad that you, that you mentioned the workplace because when you think about what's going on now, you know, I've been in, in management of, of some sort for over 30 years now. And it was never back in the day and up until, quite honestly, the last couple of years since the pandemic started. It was very unusual for an employer to um, raise that issue in the in the workplace, right? Proactively speaking, to ask your team how they're doing, you know, just ask about their mental health. How are you doing? And how can we help you? And and reminding folks of the employee assistance program that uh, a fair number of employers have. And of course, that's not necessarily available to hourly workers who don't get full benefits at their employer. But in the last two years, what I've noticed is a real solid trend in articles in professional journals, whether it's HBR, which is Harvard Business Review, or Stanford Social Innovation, or uh, Medium, or any you know type of management type of mindsets, they, I, I can tell you almost on a weekly basis, I am seeing some kind of article of some sort prompting managers, supervisors, senior leaders to broach that proactively as a way of caring for your employees, as a way of empathizing with them, and more importantly, as a way of keeping them, right? Because right. when we talk about attrition, um, folks can get into um, a space where they it's hard for, for folks to navigate and and feel productive, right? And so folks tend to recoil and then HR issues start. And then before you know it, the employee has been exited from the organization. But at a time when there's this 
quote unquote, the great resignation happening, which there are problems with with that um, nomenclature as it as it stands. There still is that concern that, look, it is so expensive to lose an employee and hire someone from a productivity standpoint, but also hard cost that employers are, are stepping into that space more readily and beginning to empathize with folks. Um, and I think that's another cultural shift. You know, when you talk about cultural shifts in our community and how we started at the top of our program, reflecting on how it has evolved. That's a step in the right direction in my mind, but it falls short. I mean, the point that you just made with regard to but the Louis, vocabulary. I mean, there's also just, I mean, we're moving into this whole gig, you know, economy where you don't get those benefits, where you don't get to go to HR. There's no HR to, to, to you know, come to your, mostly the company's, you know, defense or assistance. So, like, you don't get the, the boss who... You can ask for PTO or get the, you know, health benefits that you need for that either. So, I mean, on one hand, we have some of those, you know, CEOs and companies that are moving towards that. But on the other hand, they're also moving towards not having any benefits by doing contract work with everyone. Yeah. Yeah. I I mean, both are true. Absolutely. Both are true. Uh, But I think it's a it's one of these movements that. That's why we need to insist on healthcare for everyone, right? Yes. I mean, because it should not be tied to your job. That does, never. It should not be to tied to your job, right? And it should not be tied to your location either. You know, you've got young uh, folks who have graduated from college, still on their parents' uh, insurance company, you know, insurance policy, but living in a different state for whatever reason and having limited coverage to no coverage or very expensive coverage because they're quote unquote out of network. Right. So it manifests itself in so many different ways. You know, I, I just, I think about the, um, that return to work space. I have gotten so many folks in my, um, in, in, in the church circles, um, who were dreading going back mm-hmm. in person because mm-hmm. they got a break from the microaggressions and things like that, that they were facing from folks. Um, but also in addition to that, uh, beyond the microaggressions was, were these things, these subtle ways in which we, we get these mental models in place about what people can and can't do these, as you were talking about those stigmas, um, you know, these subtle ways in which people insinuate that somehow you don't know what you're doing, right. Or that somehow, you know, you aren't, um, you aren't skilled enough, even though you've passed all the, <laughs> you, you, you wouldn't be there if you didn't have the skills. There's a term for that. Can I, can I share that real quick and you can continue? Go ahead. Go Competency ahead. microaggression. Yes. That. Wow. So, yeah. So, um, it is, it is basically inferring that as a BIPOC person, you lack the competency to do the job. And the only reason you are in your job is because you are BIPOC. That's competency well, microaggressions. You mean and, and, and affirmative action? Well, well right? yeah, all of those things get into the mix. <laughs> the only and here's why the, we're there is because of affirmative action. And and it doesn't always come out that overt. What where, where I often encountered it were all these other reasons that seem to only be applied to me or be applied to the folks of color over time, and that kind of. And 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 they're, they're, the the thing that happens, and this is Sam. This is one of the things I'm I'm I'm, I'm curious about because this is hard to cope with. Is that you you don't realize? So oftentimes, I hadn't realized that that was the case until 
um, something happens that gives the aha. And then all these subtle ways that have added up over time that no one could ever say is specifically that's because it, it'd be one thing if somebody just came and called me an affirmative action hire. Like you can take that and do something with that. It's a lot harder to do something with that that happens over time and only exhibits itself as a pattern when you put all of these experiences together mm-hmm. that you may not even have all the experiences for. And so then you end up, you know, there are these moments. And, and again, this came out in a conversation with my black therapist who, as I was recounting all of these experiences, they stopped and went, hold on, hold on, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. I'm noticing this pattern. And as they began to began to go back and unpack all of these things, I realized I was working in a workplace that didn't have any respect or value beyond what they could extract from me. There are many times where I've been in a situation where I'm the one out there bringing in work, <laughs> doing things, you know, getting stuff to the table, having something to offer that folks really want, but I'm not doing it in the same way. Then all of a sudden, instead of what it looks like on paper, and that is you got one person who's responsible for all the all, for for the for the advancement that's happening now what you get is all of these comments about how it's done or that it's done or or being said i want you to take care of this cuz you're being so successful and i'm like okay well i guess i'll do that too and then all the ideas you bring through aren't, aren't accepted and then there's a some kind of report about how you're doing your job well this is what you asked me to do in the first place what i'm actually good at and out there doing you're not getting me any credit for whatsoever oh my god all right and i'm seeing that all your faces coming out oh my god come on Come on. Yeah. And 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 the 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 workplace gaslighting that happens when yes. you are that person of color feeling all these things and you're like, is this just me? Like, is this is this real? Is this happening? And 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 then yeah, the the number of people that will reinterpret what the situation is because you got to give somebody the benefit of the doubt or like, you know, the, <laughs> the worst thing is when they do it, it to you way. when you're young, yeah. like when you're really young, because yes. then I just kind of chalk it up to, oh, I must be so naive. But really yeah. they were taking advantage of that, me being so naive and being like, well, oh, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm young and stupid. But Hilly, it happens. It happens no matter where we end up. So the, the thing that everyone is talking about now, I have brought up, you know, at different different times and counter stories. But you you're you guys are explaining my experience as director of the chemical health division at the Minnesota Department of Human Services. <laughs> That's what I put up with for eight, nine years. I mean, I had elected officials who would not talk to me. I mean, you know, sitting on task force and have and people just totally ignoring. The single state authority on alcohol and drugs. It 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 it's an experience. They hire you, they bring you in, and then they make comments. Oh, well, that's why we brought you in because you're handling all diversity and equity across the department. No, that's not what you hired me for. You hired me to handle mm-hmm. substance abuse treatment and prevention. When we look at youth, and we look at youth, and we look at mental health and and youth and this whole COVID nineteen crisis, you know, one of the things that we were finding out, at least from my experience, is that is that if someone is seen, let's say a youth is seen by, had been referred by school and is referred to a mental health worker, um, and that mental health worker is not necessarily someone who works for the school, but for another agency outside, the way the system's set up, there's, there's no communication back to the school in terms of progress or whatever. Not that they would have to get into the nitty gritty of what, every, you know, every, every session is about, but they're, you know, 
And when it comes for payment, it's all over the place. And so even so, even as communities of color and Native Americans, it's hard enough for us to find providers that look like us. But even for white males, as you mentioned, Sam, there's not much of a system in place even for them. And right. so the mental health system is broken. Well, it, I mean, there a number of national leaders on mental health policy and systems, um, th- they wouldn't say that the system's broken. They would say that the system was never designed to f- work in the first place. Mm. So the system we have is is fractious. And because like when you go back to um, like who, who were actually running those mental health institutions or the mental health services, a lot of them were charitable organizations run by different uh, religious groups. And so those religious groups had very different philosophies and different methods or different uh, ideas for how to heal a human being. And so all of those different charitable groups and organizations then just kind of got funded by state organizations to take on more and more of the burden when the the shift fell away from the health services into what was there to, to catch people. And that was, that was a lot of those organizations. Uh, So like the systems and because it wasn't fully accepted in the healthcare systems, um, a lot of it was shunned as well. But now we're getting to the point where like substance use disorder, that is a, a diagnosed mental health condition. It's not something else. It is, it is a mental health condition and deserves the exact same level of treatment and seriousness instead of uh, what had been done for, for all of these centuries of victim blaming when people were suffering traumas and self-medicating. Um, so what they were doing was seeking what is now prescribed by a multi-billion dollar pharmaceutical organization <clears throat> as uh, a pill that will treat the same symptoms that alcohol kind of also would mute. So like alcohol or other, other controlled substances would, would mute and have, this, have similar effects or at least be easier to get for people who didn't have the coverage or the plans that would give them the access to what was legitimized as, as uh, um, medications. You know, and so, and, and without getting too deep, you know, you, when we're, what we're really talking about is that for, for many folks dealing with mental illness, depending on severity, um, bipolar, for instance, right? It, it's a chemical imbalance and alcohol has a way of, Maybe not balancing that back out, but masking that, self-medicating, right? right? So, so even with the medications that we currently have, <laughs> they're not quite sure what to, what works or what doesn't work, right? I mean, it's masking. There are so many after effects for so many folks on certain medications that you know, and and they really can't tell you exactly what it is. But but that's but you know that's an, I think that's another whole program. Yeah, I'm, we, are, we are definitely going to have to have you uh, come back and join us, Sam. There's just so much to cover when you start talking about 
mental health and you add in all the other dimensions and your your expertise as a, as a producer and a, and a media professional, as Don is, right? We all radio professionals here now. <laughs> yeah. uh, so, um, so um, Sam. Be, be, before we wrap up on that on that regard, I just wanted to give you some kudos and shout out, Sam, for for speaking to something that's been on my heart for a long time, and that is honoring the cultural practices that we have in our communities to deal with um, and address mental health things that does not get address that does not get called out whenever folks say here are things that you can do, but also um, to acknowledge that we have been coping with. Some you know things now that we know more about it. We may have new language for it, but I just I want to commend you both on the on the on the stuff on the website around youth and talking with youth, um, but also just calling out the cultural ways in which we have assets and resources um, that do not get acknowledged by the health field. And many times that folks will come around and present as new science when it's thousands of years old. So I just wanted to right. to commend you for bringing that out in your in your in your um, in your work. My pleasure. I was hoping to do more. Well, your voice is going to be missed, Sam. Hopefully, it'll be right back up again sometime soon. Thanks for joining us. I'm Halili, owner of the Other Media Group and producer of Counter Stories. I'm Don Eubanks, associate of Dendros Group and member of the Malacs Panel of Jubilee I'm Luz Maria Frias, Deputy Attorney General with the state of Minnesota. Any comments and opinions that I've voiced are strictly my own and should not be attributed to my employer. I'm Anthony Galloway, pastor of St. Mark AME Church and senior partner at Dendros Group. And I'm Sam Chu, former content manager for Call to Mind at Minnesota Public Radio and uh, still working journalist. Thanks for joining us. This has been Counter Stories, a co-production of the Counter Stories crew, the other media group, and Ampers, diverse radio for Minnesota's communities, with support from the Minnesota Arts and Cultural Heritage Fund. For our full conversation, please visit counterstories.com.